Welcome to Bulls Gold on Nothing But Net Radio, part of Dash Radio and 1252 Sports Entertainment. I am Salim Sutterwala, and as always, I'm joined by Edward Shula Jr. Edward, how's it going, man? Hey, I'm doing well. Uh, we've had some good playoff games uh, recently, especially in the uh, Utah Clippers series. So I've been enjoying uh, what we've been seeing in the second round, but uh, everything is everything right now. How about you? Yeah, things are going well. Enjoying the playoffs. Um, enjoying the Phoenix Suns. I think that team, I, I feel like they probably have a good shot of winning it. I underestimated the Nets. I don't know. I guess like my my conventional NBA mind just like looked at them and said, yeah, I know they have three superstars, but I look at their interior. They had they don't have a lot of interior, like rim protection, mm-hmm. obviously outside of Claxton, who doesn't get as many minutes as he potentially should. And then when you consider, like I said, against their overall defense, I think they ranked like 26th or 23rd in the league in the NBA. So when I looked at that, I was like, I feel like that'll probably hurt them in the playoffs, but it hasn't really so far. I thought the Bucks might do a little more damage against them with like Giannis and and Giannis and um Brooke Lopez. But mm. yeah, for whatever reason, well not whatever reason, I think their offense is just so elite, like historically elite that it kind of offsets whatever issues they may have on defense. And it's almost like their offense is so strong that they're that's kind of their defense. Like that might be like kind of wears the opposing defense down or the opposing team down and the opposing team's offense then kind of is not as uh, strong, I guess, Mm -hmm. if you will. But yeah, Yeah. the playoffs have been really fun. And I think uh, it's refreshing to see that we'll have a, you know, a new champion again as well. Yeah. I think we're always, uh, the playoffs always remind us of the irreplaceable value of elite half court offense or elite half court shot creators. And, you know, what we're seeing with Donovan Mitchell in Utah, of course, what Brooklyn's been doing with Durant, Kyrie, when James Harden is healthy, when you just have guys like that who can get their own bucket, regardless of what the defense is doing to you, that's how you win championships. And, you know, not having a center, not having certain size, like those are flaws, but it's it's always going to come down to who steps up the most with individual offense in the playoffs. For sure, for sure. But yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get into playoffs later. Uh, more so. Uh, but yeah, we have a very special guest on with us today. Uh, senior writer for Sports Illustrated, Chris Herring. He covers the NBA in general, and uh, we're really happy to have him today. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction. I appreciate you having me. I'm doing well. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I've been, I've been following you for a long time. I, I remember since your days that you covered New York, uh, the Knicks, I should say, not New York, uh, the state that you didn't cover the state, you covered the Knicks. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, that I was always, uh, you've always been one of my favorite writers. And, you know, when, when I get an opportunity to talk to someone like yourself, I love to like kind of hear about how they decided to get into sports journalism. Was that something that you always wanted to do writing since like high school or since you were even before that? And you like wrote for your school papers. And then eventually when you got to college, you know, you went up and beyond. Or is that something that kind of you didn't know what you want to do? And that's something you came about uh, once you got into college uh, and beyond that. 
Yep. No, to your first question, this is something that I, from the moment I did it, knew that I wanted to do it, you know, for a career. Um, so I'll, I'll walk you through the story and try to keep it relatively short. My, my best friend in the world, his name is Marcus, um, actually just got married last week. We had his wedding, which was awesome. Um, but he, he and I would talk on the phone every day after school. And I think at the very beginning of one year, one quarter or something, I asked him kind of how his classes were in high school. And he was like, oh, they're cool. And I was like, well, what are you even taking? Because I'm not sure what electives you're in or what have you. And he was like, well, I'm taking journalism. And I was like, oh, like, well, tell me more about like how the class is and what, what all you guys doing there? You know, like, you're not doing the school paper, are you? And he was like, well, no, the journalism class is a two-part class where the first part is just teaching you the basics about journalism and reading and kind of writing practice stories. And then if you like it and if you do a good enough job, you can join the second part of the class the next semester, the next year. And that's the class that puts together the school newspaper that comes out once every three weeks or something like that. So I was like, that sounds fascinating. And I got really jealous hearing him talk about it. Um, and I was like, I want to take that as soon as I can. And I think it must have been midway through the year when he took that one. So I took it the next school year. And I remember my first day in the class and just kind of talking through it with my teacher. Um, and I was like, I want to do this so badly. Like, I know I want to do this. And I, I would get home and it would be the only homework I would want to do to like read up on what was happening in the world and figure out how I would try to recast that story if I was writing about, you know, the Chicago suburbs or about my hometown, about my school. So I got really into it. And again, you know, there was a two-part class. So the first part, I was like acing because I was only working on that. Like my other homework was on the back burner. I would only work on my journalism class stuff. And I was so adamant about it, basically, that my journalism teacher basically agreed to, she didn't quite waive the requirement for me to have to take the first part of the class, but she was letting me like, I think our, our high school newspaper, she took them on a trip to go to San Diego for a journalism conference. And she let me go with the journalism class, like the newspaper people, even though I wasn't on the newspaper staff yet, because I was so adamant about it, because I was so kind of advanced with it so quickly, because I was throwing everything I had at it. I had been on the baseball team already and um, was going through all the, the preseason training to do that. And, you know, the, the preseason workouts. And I ended up telling my coach, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm actually not going to play baseball this year because I would rather write about you guys and announce your games on the radio and broadcast the games on the radio. It was like a play by play announcer. And he was so utterly confused. He was like, so you're just quitting. Like you're probably going to be a starter on varsity this year. I was like, I'm, I don't want to play. So he was confused by that. Um, but I loved the journalism stuff so much. I also was with the, the TV station that we had at our high school. So I was an anchor on our TV station for our news channel. I was a radio play by play for baseball and basketball. And I wrote for the school newspaper in high school. So I did all three of those things. When I got to the university of Michigan, the first full day that I was there after I got moved in, um, I walked up to the school newspaper, went there with all my newspaper, um, high school newspaper clips to show, you know, the editor to try to convince them to let me work there. They're like, you don't need any of this stuff to show us, but what we're happy to have you on board. Um, and so I started writing there maybe once a week as a freshman and then started to write a lot more frequently, maybe twice a week, you know, as a sophomore, and then basically became the news editor um, as a junior and a senior. 
um, where it was like a 60 hour a week commitment. Um, way more time I was putting into that than in, in the school would be kind of a commitment from probably, I would say 4 p.m. to 3 or 4 a.m. Um, pretty much every day, including uh, Sunday nights. Um, so you lose most of your social life there, but it was completely worth it. I got internships, um, you know, at a number of big papers throughout the country here in Chicago, um, was freelancing for the Detroit Free Press, interned at the Cleveland Plain Dealer, got an internship at the Wall Street Journal after my senior year, which was how I got to the Wall Street Journal to cover the Knicks eventually. Um, but before even that, I, I was covering news, um, crime, law, politics, um, and then without me knowing and without really even being asked, quite frankly, the sports editor at the Wall Street Journal was also someone who'd gone to Michigan, not with me, but just in general. And he essentially orchestrated a trade um, for he took one of his sports reporters and traded them to the news section for me without my like blessing or without asking if I wanted that. So I got moved into the sports section kind of against my will to some extent. Um, not that I was angry about it, but I would have probably liked to have been involved in the discussion. Um, so I got moved in to sports. I covered the Jets for a year um, in football and thought I liked it, but actually probably hated it. Um, and then uh, after that one year, they moved me onto the Knicks beat. And so that's kind of, I guess, probably how you guys know me is when I took the Knicks beat on as a, what, 25-year-old or something like that. And yeah, so I, I, I've always known I wanted to do this, like ever since that day that I stepped into that journalism class as a junior, I've always known I wanted to do this. And uh, to the point where I stopped, immediately started quitting other stuff that I didn't think was as important. Like I loved high school sports and playing high school sports, but I wasn't going to be a pro athlete. You know, I was decent, but I wasn't great. Um, was never really great at hitting breaking balls as a high schooler. And so, um, you know, my, my baseball coach was confused, but I think the, you know, the shift made sense and, Certainly now looking back on it, I think was a really adult decision to make. I'll give you one more anecdote. So I started writing for the high school newspaper. The first piece I wrote, I, I think, was we had a career day at our school every year in high school. And, um, you know, where you take your gym period and they set up the gym that day to be basically you just walk through the entirety of the gym. And they've got a bunch of different stations set up with a bunch of different professional people there to explain how they got the jobs they got, what they do for a living. And I remember they would give you a worksheet that you had to fill out. And it was like five or six different boxes that you had to fill out, explaining what people do, explaining what it pays, explaining how you get there and, you know, what sort of education you have to have to get the job. And also, so basically like it was more or less busy work to some extent that you have to talk to X number of people to fulfill the assignment. Um, to complete the assignment. And I did that, but I remember being pissed off because I just wanted to sit and talk with a journalist for the whole hour that we had. And instead I had to talk to, you know, five other people in addition to the journalist and just to complete the assignment, even though I knew I wanted to just talk to the journalist all the time because I knew what I wanted to do. Um, so I wrote, you know, a letter kind of bitching about how the career day is not counterproductive, but it's like, you're making me go around and talk to everybody under the sun when this person I want to talk to is right here and you're limiting the amount of time I can speak with them for and wrote a letter to the editor complaining about that. Or I wrote a column complaining about that. And then I remember the coolest thing I thought was that like the next week or maybe the next issue of the paper, 
the career day organizer from our high school wrote a letter back complaining about my complaint. She's like, well, it's wonderful that Mr. Herring knows exactly what he wants to do with a 14-year-old, or, or maybe not 14, I guess maybe 16-year-old. But everyone else doesn't exactly know that at 16. So, you know, good for you, but stop complaining about something that might help other people, which I think in hindsight, I think she's probably very right that I was probably unusual in knowing exactly what I wanted to do. But I, I mean, that's kind of just more evidence that I knew exactly what I wanted at that age to drive her paper. And I, and from her response, I thought that was cool because just by seeing that, obviously she had been criticized. And so she had more incentive to read it or, or look at it, but to know that people are reading what you're saying and want to interact with you, it's kind of, that was kind of like a low level version of what Twitter is now. You write right. something now that gets under people's skin, you get an immediate reaction to it, sometimes too immediate. Um, but uh, it's really cool to know that people care what you think. Um, and sure. you know, people don't abuse that and, you know, and, and bastardize it to where it's, you know, skip Bayless level. But no, it's very yeah. cool, to, you know, <laughs> to have an opinion that people react to, a level-headed opinion that people react to. And, you know, hopefully you've put thought and time into your your opinion, you know, and it's not just run-of-the-mill. But uh, that, that feeling as a 16-year-old to know that people are reading your stuff and want to react to it is very cool. Did you ever have like a a moment when just being around certain athletes or coaches or uh, other uh, people in your field and it just made your decision just feel more real? Like whether you asked them a question or, you know, they took you to the side and y'all talked about something or just having like any like experiences with them on the job where it was just like, yeah, that. Like that sticks out as a moment where you knew this was like the path for you. I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. I'm not sure if there was ever one moment that stuck out. I can think of tons of moments that scared the crap out of me. And I left <laughs> out when, when you guys asked me the question just a moment ago. Um, so I'll give you those and we'll go from there. Uh, so I, like I said, I thought I'd really liked the Jets beat before I think any if anything is more that I was 24 and I was covering a pro team in New York which you can't really ask for much more than that you know as, as a kid as, as a college you know someone that's pretty fresh out of college still um but I the truth was I I kind of hate the way football is covered to some extent um it's advantageous from the standpoint that there's just the one game per week but it makes for a really slow news cycle within that week where you know the whole week is a build up to the game and, you know, but the teams are ultra secret about what they're doing for the week. Um, yeah. Operatives and stuff like that. Right. It's, it's, it, that's kind of boring. Um, and then the game happens and then no matter what happens, depending on, you know, unless you're covering the Packers or something like that, it's just a constant complaint fest from the fans, which I, you know, I would be in that group too, if I was a fan, but, you know, I was covering Mark Sanchez at the time. And so yeah. every week was just like our new referendum on Mark Sanchez. If he throws three touchdowns, oh, he's a savior. If he throws three picks, like get him out of here. And normally it was him throwing three picks. So it was just, you know, all people would write about and talk about was Mark Sanchez. Or maybe like a Rex Ryan foot fetish from time to time. But, <laughs> but it was like there was no air to write about anything else. And I would write these really thoughtful, fun pieces on the linemen. I wrote a really fun piece on the setup of their locker room and why their locker room was set up the way it was set up. 
so that certain people could be next to each other, so that certain people would be far away from each other to allow enough space for the media to come in and kind of crowd around someone. And it was like strategic. And, you know, interesting story on that. I wrote a story about Darrell Revis and kind of why he wasn't getting interceptions, but how you could make the argument that it was his best defensive year of his career. And, you know, we've heard about the Revis Island stuff since then. So it's probably not, wouldn't stand out now the way it did then is a really smart piece, but the way he was um, disguising his coverages basically with, with some kind of really inside baseball as to what he was doing. And I would write these stories. I would spend a little bit of time on and get, you know, one-on-one interviews for, but they were just so drowned out either because one, I was new to the beat or two that um, again, everybody cared mainly about Mark Sanchez and that was all they cared about. So everything else was just drowned out and using advanced numbers didn't really break through the way it does in basketball for whatever reason. It seemed like football was not really ready for that and still football. You know, I think there's some smarter analysts that use advanced stuff now, certainly Bill Barnwell and and some other people do. But at the time, like, I just don't think people were ready for it or didn't care to read it or didn't know who I was enough to read it. Um, So it was frustrating. Anyway, I say all that to say this. My editor at the Wall Street Journal pretty much put me on notice and was like, you got to do better on this beat. Like, I'm not sure. I don't know how to put a finger on what you're not doing or what you're not saying or what you're not writing or what we're not really loving. But um, like, if you can't do better than this, then maybe, you know, we'll find a different beat for you or we'll, you know, maybe it would be best to go back to the news section. And I was like, oh, okay. So he said that. And then, you know, lo and behold, a couple months later, he puts me on the Knicks beat. So I felt like the Knicks beat was a punishment to some extent, which, you know, I, again, I'm 25. I'm sitting here feeling filled with anxiety over the idea of like, am I about to be out of a job? Am I about to be moved into the new section again, which they just moved me out of? So, you know, I'm thinking I'm failing, even though I'm working as hard as I've ever worked. I was putting in a ton of time on the job. I had no social life because I was only doing the job. Um, living in a city where I didn't have that many friends. And then he put me on the Knicks beat. And then all of a sudden, all that stuff was clicking in a way that it just hadn't with the Jets beat, where people were a lot more receptive to reading about kind of the inside baseball and the nuances and the numbers and stuff like that. And it just clicked for some reason. And the games were more frequent, which helped, where you weren't sitting here having to belabor the point about whether Carmelo was too much of a ball hog to win. I mean, that comes up from time to time, but it's not a five day a week conversation Hmm. the way that Mark Sanchez was. So it worked better for all sorts of reasons. So that moment I remember, but I I remember that being kind of like where the, you know, where the rubber meets the road, where, you know, I remember talking to my dad a lot, just about self-doubt. And I think self-doubt is always hard, but I think it's hardest when you feel like you're already working as hard as you could possibly work where it's easy 60 hour, easy 60 hour a week commitment that you do without flinching and still being told that you're not doing well enough. That's hard. And that's something where it's like something has to be different, but you're not even sure what no one was even really articulating for me, like what I wasn't doing well or what I wasn't doing right. So that was a moment where journalism was real to me and maybe not even journalism, but just work in general and maybe the most stressed out I've ever felt. Um, But yeah, that moment was tough. There were moments during the internship for me that were tough as well in a different sort of way, not that, but, um, but yeah, that, that, so I don't know if there was ever a moment where because of who I was talking to that it felt real to me. Um, The first real interview I had where other people seemed to be really impressed by who I was talking to was kind of 
an older generation. My dad, I remember interviewing Jim Brown oh, at one wow. point when I was interning in Cleveland before I got to New York um, and was at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He happened to be there that day and was talking to him. And uh, my dad was like blown away because that was like one of his football heroes as a young kid. So those sorts of things, you know, there are always moments where people are blown away by who you're talking to or, you know, I remember right when I joined the next beat, I had dinner with Carmelo. And uh, that was one of those things where when I told my friends out there, like, wait, you what? Um, <laughs> That's so notable. Like those, I, I almost feel like those aren't, those aren't journalism though, in the sense that like that doesn't just normally happen. You know, most beat writers aren't having dinner with Carmelo. That was something that was kind of set up. that was different. So you know, I don't equate those much with my journalism career, but yeah, lots of moments that make you go like, what the hell just happened? Or how did that just happen? Or what am I doing? Or how did I get here? There are a lot of moments like that. Yeah, that's me- like meeting like people that you kind of like watch on TV. It's always like, and it's not I don't know, surreal, but it's just kind of like when you meet them, it's like, oh, you're kind of like an everyday person too. You're not you're not this, you know, larger than life personality that I envision and I like, you know, glamorize and, you know, and, and, and different, all these different opinions about. It. And I think of you as a, this, this type of way. I think of you as a villain. I think of you as a, you know, as a, as a hero or whatever, but you're just, you know, it's no matter, no matter how big and how, what you do, you're still just, a, you know, you're normal. You're like, one of us in, in, in certain ways. So that's always interesting when you meet someone that's uh, at that level. Do, do you ever have a, do you have like a story that maybe was surreal for you in a sense when you met someone, obviously like you met Carmelo, you had dinner with him, but in a sense that you were like, Oh why? Oh man, this is, I can't believe this is my job or like in a, even a story that was maybe someone like people I haven't really heard about before that, that was just kind of blew you away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so definitely the latter, um, for me, I'll give you the person, not that I was interviewing, but just that we're seeing covering a Super Bowl and a guy checking into the hotel, you know, the same hotel as me right next to me watching Nas check into the hotel at the same time as me. It was like, wow. <laughs> Oh man, <laughs> um, that was really cool. That was for a Super Bowl. But then again, you know, Super Bowl, everybody is going, including a lot of celebrities, but, um, just introduced myself and just told him how big a fan I was. But aside from that, no. Um, so the story that I have, because, I, you know, because I'm in sports, I think people only know my sports stuff. Um, it's always weird when, you know, people tweet at you and they're like, stick to sports and, you know, or um, that's not what you're paid to talk about. And it's like, well, actually, I have been paid to talk about this before. So I'm pretty yeah. well-versed <laughs> Politically, certainly, you know, and yeah, what yeah. college and history and stuff like that. So um, before I covered sports, before they moved me over to the Jets and the sports beat at the Wall Street Journal, I was covering politics, I was covering law, I was covering crime. Um, and to some extent, you know, by doing all those things, I was essentially a, a GA, a general assignment reporter that just covers whatever. And when I interned at the Wall Street Journal, I was technically covering law. Um, and what people kept telling me because you have to keep in mind, when I was graduating from college, it was 2008. Um, no, I take it back, 2009. And um, so there was still a recession at the time. You know, it was around the time of the auto bailout and Obama trying to just get the country out of the mud. And um, newspapers were just starting to really die out at that time. 
both because of the economy, but just in general, because of, you know, the proliferation of online news and advertisements and, and stuff like that. So newspapers were trying to figure it out. They were really, really tight about their internships that year. Um, so most of the newspapers that even had internships were cutting them back or cutting them entirely. So anyway, I ended up at the Wall Street Journal. People kept telling me repeatedly, we're not going to be able to give any of our interns jobs this year. It's just too tight of a market. We don't have the money. Um, I was told that very early. So, you know, it kind of felt like Willy Wonka and, you know, Charlie with the golden ticket. Like all of a sudden it's like if they told you there are no more golden tickets. And I think that does happen in the movie where there are no more golden tickets, but then they realize one is a fraud. And so there's one left yeah. trying to get it. So I felt like I was in that mode where there's no tickets left, but I still wanted to try to put my best foot forward. But at a certain point, because I knew that that opportunity was technically out the window, I just put my head down and worked really hard and said, let me at least try my best to impress them. And maybe I'll get an offer from them later, or maybe they'll keep me on as an intern for a while or something. You never know who you can impress. And everybody kept telling me the way to really impress the editors, there's two things you can do. One, you either, you know, make yourself available all the time. So, you know, there's always weekend duty at the Wall Street Journal um, to where if a, a big story breaks on the weekend, um, nobody wants to be called in to the office to work on something on a Saturday or a Sunday. But if something happens, um, if you make yourself available and put your hand up to do it, it looks good at least. It, at least you're making yourself available. You want to be involved. You're not, you know, I was out there for an internship. So I was like, well, that's easy. You look good either way. You, you say that you're available. And if nothing happens, at least you made yourself available. But if something does happen and it's a big story and big enough to be covered on the weekend, you might get a front page story out of it, um, you know, or might be able to work on a front page story with someone. So lo and behold, one of those things happened. Um, not good news. You know, I guess something happened, but it wasn't something I was rooting for. Um, a helicopter collided with um, um, a prop plane over the Hudson River that summer. And so because I was on duty um, and it had said that I'll take weekend duty, I had to go out there and cover that and write about that and ended up writing about that as a front page story for a couple of days with a coworker. Um, so that kind of put me on some people's radars. But the other thing people kept telling me too, is that um, I don't know if you guys read the wall street journal, if you've read it before. Yeah. Pick it up. And there's all, it's such a serious newspaper for the most part. There's always that one story at the bottom in the middle of the page where they have like the dot drawing that the wall street journal has kind of become known for. Um, where it's kind of a, a less serious story and normally a, a funny sort of story to break up the seriousness of the other subjects that they have on the front page. It's called their A-head story. Um, and so they kept saying that, you know, we always have a shortage of these stories because the paper's so serious and everyone's working on serious stories. Um, so we really would love for people to kind of look for these sorts of fun, lighthearted stories to put on the front page and in particular, if interns can do that, certainly if they can do it regularly, it really bolsters your chances of being noticed at the paper because it's such a coveted thing. Only one of those stories runs per day. So if an intern can come up with an idea like that and run it on the front page, it really gives you a leg up on everybody else. So I started telling myself, I've got to get one of those A-head stories before I finish my internship because I really got to impress my, my bosses. Um, so I remember one night in particular, I had been beating up on myself because I couldn't find one or come up with an idea like that. And eventually what I ended up doing, I told myself, I'm going to sit in this office tonight until, until I find an A-head worthy sort of idea. 
I don't care what time it is. I'm not leaving. I was like, well, maybe I'll leave because I have to change clothes and not look disgusting here the next day. But I think it was like a Tuesday or a Wednesday night and everybody else left the paper to go home. So it's like 830 maybe. And I went and I looked up every newspaper in America that was like had an online version of the paper from like Alabama. And I think Alabama is the first state um, to, you know, whatever. And I was just going to work my way down through the list. Probably Washington, probably the last one. Um, through every state, every newspaper they had online. I went through every story I could find that day, like that week in every newspaper. And I was like, I, until I find something that I can kind of pull on a thread and make a bigger story out of it, I'm not leaving. And I'll just stay here. And so I think I got to about one o'clock in the morning, maybe two. I'd gotten my way to the H's and I found this bizarre ass story in Hawaii. Um, it So to walk you through it, it was a, a monk seal, Hawaiian monk seal, that basically, in a nutshell, had been birthed by a mother that then started to attack it. So, like, sometimes, you know, mothers, uh, animal mothers don't take well to their kin or if there's something yeah. wrong, they notice it right away, they try to eat them, whatever. So, the monk seal was, like, endangered because of the mother. So, these scientists came and picked it up and took it away. They raised it. Basically, I won't say in a lab, but, like, these scientists raised it. Um, and at a certain point, it's not ideal to, you know, to be raised by people. So they tried to release it out into the wild. And when that ended up happening, the seal swam to this like remote part of Hawaii, the smallest island called Molokai. It swam to Molokai. And it's this island where there's like no streetlights, no shopping malls, no movie theaters. There's one restaurant on the whole island. It's just stop signs. Basically, it's like nature. And it's, they're very... Uh, adamant about keeping it that way with like no real civilization. It's just basically nature and nothing else. Um, so when this seal swam there, these people viewed it, there's also a very religious group of people that live there. They viewed it as like the sign from God that the seal was meant to be there because there was nothing else to do for entertainment or anything. The seal was there. The seal would randomly just kind of wash up and chill on the sidewalk and <laughs> people would go swimming and the seal would swim with people people would throw their dogs in the water and the seal would play with the dogs. It was just this very friendly seal. Um, but then as people started to talk about it and write about it on the island, the scientists that had let the seal go heard about it. And they're like, no, 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 no. We released the seal so the seal could truly be wild. So we don't want the seal to be interacting with people because it defeats the entire purpose of us having released it. So they came back to get the seal and set it free again. And within two days, the seal ended up right back in that same spot on that island. So then they really thought the seal was meant to be there. And so what happened then, the scientists said, okay, we're going to come back and take the seal again, but now we're really going to put it far away to where it can't swim back. It worried people because they were going to put the seal in a place where a lot of sharks were known to kind of hang out. So I say all that to say this, it basically set up this battle between the scientists that wanted to put the seal like far, far away in a position where it might get killed and eaten versus these people that wanted to keep the seal because they felt like it was a sign from God that it needed to be there. And all that had been written about it was like these small little blog posts in the, on this small remote Hawaiian island that barely anybody lives on. And I looked and looked and looked to see, has anybody written about this yet in the mainstream media or even just in the Hawaiian media? Because that's like a small blog that nobody's read before. And no, nobody had written about it. So I started hopping on the phone with people calling about the seal, hearing about how the seal was starting to grow too big and starting to play too rough and starting to pull people underwater. 
um, playfully, but you know, somewhat dangerously. And my editor was like, this is a fantastic story. And so that one night in the office paid off, the story ran on the front page, um, got picked up everywhere. Katie Couric did a segment about it on the evening news with CBS. Um, my editor wanted me to do a children's book on it. Um, you know, all sorts of stuff. I, I never did end up doing the children's book. Someone else wrote a book about the seal after I did that <laughs> and excited me all throughout it. Um, but that is to this day is still the most proud I've ever been of a story because I, I remember just feeling like my back was against the wall that I had to prove myself that I had to do something different. And I just stayed in the office, you know, for six, seven hours after work to find something and found that went out to Hawaii. I think I'm still the only intern that's ever gone out to Hawaii for a story. Everybody in the office was really jealous that they sent me to Hawaii, but that was just a really crazy time, but something I'm extremely, extremely proud of. Um, ended up doing a follow-up story on it too. The seal eventually went blind because oh. it was deprived of mother's milk. And so oh. the island didn't get to keep the seal, but the scientists also didn't get to take the seal and take them away. They ended up taking the seal and putting them like in an aquarium on a different island so that they'd just be able to keep them so that he wouldn't be at a risk. Basically, he wouldn't have been able to bend for himself with the blindness, you know, out in the middle of the ocean somewhere. So, right, right. Um, so it was kind of like a happy medium that they had between the two things. But that story was so fun to work on. Um, it was a fun video that they had me do with it while I was there. Um, so, yeah, that that's what stands out to me about my career and a moment that I would venture to guess almost none of the people that follow my Knicks work and my NBA work would be aware of. But I'm way more proud of that than anything I've ever done as far as NBA stuff. One yeah, the, that's amazing. One of the things that's always interested me about journalism is the fact that it changes every like 10 years or so, really, in terms of like how we consume it and how people are able to report on it. So you mentioned how, you know, when you started about 10 years ago, that uh, social media like Twitter was really that was when Twitter was really starting to just really launch right like it it started as the website where oh man Shaq is eating doritos at 10 30 in the morning this is pretty cool <laughs> so now in 2021 we find real stories and we break real stories on twitter so and, and i think that social media you talked about this earlier it's that newspapers now are trying to keep up with it because a lot of stories don't even start from official like news sources like they can start from anywhere really and sometimes the sources are not like valid or whatever but it's just always amazing how that goes so i bring that to say this is how how do you what well i guess advice or how do you feel about the way news has changed now and what advice would you give to people who are thinking about getting into that space and operating in the current news space? Yeah, and that's a good question. And you're absolutely right. I, I remember learning the very, very hard way about social media and um, wanting to put everything you know there, um, but also having to be somewhat careful, particularly if you're someone that doesn't have a bigger following. Um, I still remember my first experience on the next beat was horrible, actually, because I remember um being told so 
I, I had to sit down with Carmelo. I, I think he had a new shoe coming out and Nike was trying to get publicity for it. So they gave every reporter like a 15 minute sit down with them before that season. And um, I remember really vividly having a conversation with him and he kind of unprompted. He told me that Rashid Wallace had been in um, the facility working out with the Knicks. And I was like, really Rashid? Like, is he about to sign with y'all? And he was like, yeah, I think they're pretty much about to sign him. He was there. He's here. We, we love having him here. He's great with the team. Been here for the last week. So I tweeted that. And then I remember one of the people that was covering the team for ESPN at the time, not my boy Ian, because he's great. Um, somebody else <laughs> took that and like wrote about it, but he didn't have any quotes on it like I did. So I was like, he just took that from my Twitter feed and just didn't mention me at all, you know? Yeah. And, and I remember thinking like, man, and I didn't even really have the voice to complain about it because I didn't have a Twitter following. So my bosses knew that he basically kind of lifted the information from what I had. I had a whole set of quotes from it and everything in my story the next day, but I tweeted it shortly after he told me, but it's like, when you don't have a following, you're basically tweeting stuff into the void. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a timestamp that you can show and everything, but like no one's going that far into the weeds of the final. So yeah. So that part of it is interesting. It's kind of frustrating. Um, it, what I would say, man, you just, you just have to do good work. And if you're in a situation like I was, and you have a, you know, the platform of the wall street journal, maybe sit on your information a little bit longer until you can have it printed somewhere where it's documented. And then you tweet it out. Um, particularly with something like that. Now though, stuff moves so quickly you know, I, I, I'd venture to guess that, you know, if you have the following that I did at the time, which was probably a couple hundred people, now people would see it. Now the blogs exist. Now, you know, I feel like people are a little bit more harsh about when they see someone just lifting information from somebody mm-hmm. else, that it gets called out more quickly and that you develop a reputation as kind of a culture. Um, but yeah, that part of it, Twitter and knowing like what's important, what's not, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. There's a there's a lot of people out there that do that. I've never been one to really try to, you know, and if you follow my work, you know, I'm not someone that has like world level sourcing with stuff. I've never been that person. Every now and then I'll get a really good detail. Um, I remember there was a time Phil Jackson was sitting down with Carmelo at a restaurant and a couple of people told me kind of the tenor of their conversation and what they were talking about. Um, and I had details on that first and, you know, and wrote about it different stuff like that. So every now and then you get details that you you put out there, but I, I've never been one of those guys that's trying to look like a crazy scoop artist or anything. I don't think it's worth trying to make it look like you know more than you do. Mm-hmm. And if you do know something great, but like that's your job is to try to learn stuff that people don't want you to know. So um, I don't know. I, I think now there are enough checks and balances. Even the bloggers do a really good job. Like I think once upon a time, and some people probably still do it this way. People talk about blog when, whenever you get like, a newspaper reporter that talks about a blogger, they're using it as like a, a negative term or kind of a derisive term. Um, as someone that's like not at their level. And I, I'd like to think I've never quite done that. Um, if anything, I, you know, I think I've kind of embraced the blogging community. Um, but sometimes you get people that do really good jobs with that. And then they become reporters, you know, with, with the athletic or whoever else. Um, but the bloggers are paying just as much attention sometimes to the team, if not more, maybe they might not have the sourcing, but they're watching the games. They're, they're going and digging into the film. You've got whole film networks now that exist um, within the blogging community. So um, it's been really great to me. Like, I think some people are frustrated seeing the access extend 
to more people and the bloggers and people like that. And particularly with the zoom, you know, the, the zoom opportunity that opened up last year when the pandemic happened, some people are probably frustrated by seeing stuff expand that much, but I think it's great. I think it, you know, it, it makes it more competitive and more difficult to kind of just sit on your laurels. And I think it's good. Like it, it makes the fans more informed from different perspectives, from a, a friendlier perspective that is normally the, the blogs, um, the newspaper perspective, which sometimes people feel like is too critical of the team. And so you kind of get a balance that way. Um, so to some extent, I think the more the merrier, I think social media keeps people on their toes a little bit more. And quite frankly, you know, I think sometimes people go over the edge. I'm a little bit annoyed and kind of thrown off when some people are disrespectful to, to certain folks on social media, but I do think you're held accountable in a different way by having social media and having people read your work on social media and react to social media. And I think people go a little bit overboard sometimes. It's like, Oh, you were wrong. Look, see, remember this thing you tweeted a year. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mind being called out and being wrong about things. I think a lot of times it lacks context, but, um, and I think sometimes like, okay, would you prefer I never project or predict anything? Or are you going to point out the times I'm right? Which I feel like <laughs> have a little bit more than I'm wrong, but whatever. I don't mind that, but I just kind of feel like there's this whole gotcha mentality. I think there's a difference between that and just holding someone accountable, like on a, you know, if you really mess something up, being accountable for it and people being able to point to it in a different way than maybe they could before. So I think it's good. I think social media is good more or less. I think it has some really ugly parts. And I, if you follow me closely enough, you've seen I've complained about it even in the last few weeks about the tone that people use sometimes unnecessarily that just, you know, um, people come at each other wildly on Twitter. Sometimes it gets real nasty, real ugly. That's really not my cup of tea. Um, but I think generally when it's used the right way, it's a great tool, Twitter, social media to engage with people. And I, there's very little that I love more than engaging with fans um, who are just as passionate about this as I am sometimes more um, that read my work closely, that can tell me if they feel like I've been unfair with something and actually have a legitimate critique. Um, I think I learned a lot from that and I learned what people are interested in for me to even chase as far as stories through that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's a blessing and a curse, but I think it's more of a blessing. It's like the, it's the downside of reporting on things that you don't have control over. Like if you report that LeBron James is going to have tacos for dinner on Tuesday and he's like, yeah, I'm going to have tacos for t dinner. And then it's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get Burger King instead. Ah, you were wrong. So it's just <laughs> like things change it's, you can only report what you know it doesn't mean that it wasn't true at one point but yeah, yeah a lot of people I've been there with that before <laughs> Carmelo I remember so I didn't get vitriol from people but it was people were just what I'll say people are not at their best when they're really tense that's probably a good way to put it and I remember what was it 2014 when Carmelo was a free agent for the first time in his career and he was very, very, very seriously considering coming here to Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of people telling me that. And like I said, I was not the most plugged in person. And there's two ways to look at that. One, when someone that's normally not that plugged in and not making use of a ton of sources, when they start running with stuff and tying it to sources, you can look at it and say, it's BS because he never runs with anything sourced. Mm -hmm. Or you could say, it's really unusual that he runs with anything sourced. So the fact that he is now means he must really trust what he's hearing. And in particular with me, not to say I deserve the benefit of the doubt, I 
I'm really, really careful about that sort of stuff because I, because I know that's not something that I normally do. So I had heard from like three or four people that he was going as far as to talk to Bulls players, wing players in particular, that he really wanted to understand Tom Thibodeau and, you know, what it was like to play in that system. Would he survive that system if he played for Tom Thibodeau? And that he was very serious about it, even though it would represent a pay cut because the Bulls weren't going to max him out. They didn't have the money to. Um, but that he was very interested in coming here. And, you know, the way the Knicks had offered him a deal that they offered him the max, but said, like, we don't want you to take the max. So it was a very weird sort of, like, we want you, but not at that level sort of thing. Um, and I think he did take slightly less than the max, but not by much. Um, and, you know, and he was talking with the Lakers and other teams too. So it was a weird sort of thing. But I remember people saying like, oh, this isn't true. It's not true. Or, oh, like Chris never reports a certain thing. So we're, we're, we don't know that that's true. And it's not that I expect people to fully believe it, but the idea that people, there were some people that were just kind of ugly about it too, because yeah. all of a sudden they're saying you have an agenda. And it's like, I really don't have an agenda at all here. Um, this is just what I'm being told. And then when it didn't happen and he didn't go to Chicago, we're like, oh, you made it up. See, knew your stuff was wrong. And then after free agency was over, I think Carmelo had done like a short documentary with MSG or something like an episode walking through his decision making with his manager and different people. And he just straight up admitted that he was very close to going to Chicago. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that anybody had made anything up. It was that he was going through the different decisions in his head and reached a different one eventually, but was almost very serious, you know, was very serious about coming here. And so it, 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 it reaches a point where it's like, okay, as a fan, do you want to know what's happening in relatively real time? Or would you just prefer that we tell you at the very end, it could be one or the other. And, and one of the things I've grown to respect about Woj is that sometimes he kind of takes you through the intermediate steps of something, but sometimes he waits until the very end as it's about to like five minutes before it happens. Um, but when people are willing to say, gotcha, or uh, aha, you were wrong. Okay, and at that point, if you're complaining about me walking you through the different things he's deliberating about in real time, that to me says that you, you would, so you would just rather be left out of the loop completely is what you're saying. Or unless I know definitively, which he doesn't even know definitively. So what do you, at that point, like, what do you expect from me or anybody else? Yeah. Um, and like I said, I say that as someone who very rarely tries to break anything. So, but I, I do find that interesting and I do find, some of that, I won't say toxic because it's, it's not that important, but it's just a weird sort of, you, you do have a lot of people that I just kind of feel like are so quick to want to, you know, pull a, this you sort of uh, <laughs> yeah. this beam you. or what have you. And it's like, what are we doing? Like, I think if you know people's work well enough and you follow people for long enough, I'm not very rarely do I take shots at a fan base or a team or a player. If I do, it's making fun of Gallinari's, ugly ass mohawk it's not <laughs> it's not anything serious he's, he's it's not, trying it's man not personal or anything so it's like i i, I you know I, i'm always a little bit thrown off when people come at you sideways over stuff when you're trying to do a good job and you know particularly with the Knicks fan base i feel like they've taken so many pop shots over the years or had so many pop shots taken at them over the years i've never sought to do that certainly not you know more than an isolated sort of moment or anything like that. So I, you know, I, I, I'm always a little bit weirded out when people come at me sideways or when people, you know, there's, there's like a very weird legion of people that like, uh, I didn't, I don't even vote for awards. I specifically don't vote for awards because I don't really believe in that process, but 
like I wouldn't have had RJ Barrett on my all rookie team last year. And things said that on Zach Lowe's podcast and like, you know, people tweeting at me wildly and calling me out of my name and stuff like that. And I'm like, I'm not even a voter. So like, yeah. why do you care this much? But also like, I have very firm reasoning for why I don't think you should have been, but who cares what I think, particularly if I'm not voting. And then, Oh, this, you, this, you like <laughs> when he has the year he had this year. And I'm like, yeah, yeah he's not a rookie. <laughs> and like, if he looked like this last year, he would have been on the team, which is why you're saying something to me now. So it's just, it's very weird. And then like people that go out of their way to tweet you and that go out of their way to, I don't know. I don't know if it's a troll sort of thing. I think some people are, but it's just, it's weird that it's always a little bit weird to me with like, I think, accountability is a good thing, but I think it's very weird when fans somehow think that you have to have a bias if you don't vote or don't think a certain way when they're a fan in the first place. So they're already probably inclined to be more biased in favor of something than you are to be against it. Like certainly me with like, I watch all the teams. And so like, anyway, I can go on and on about that, but like there is a very weird undercurrent for certain people they go after certain people, journalists, fans, whatever. Um, I'm always a little bit thrown off when people come at me like that, just because I feel like I'm trying to watch everybody. I feel like I'm trying to be fair to everybody. Um, and I, I, I did certain things, certainly all rookie teams. I don't understand why it matters that much, especially yeah. if I'm not voting, but like people that will not let you live stuff like that down. And I'm just kind of like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Like it's just, it's, the state of the world right now is not that's not what i care about it's like a I, I i can't remember if this is actually a term or not but i feel like a lot of news now or at least from a fan's standpoint or you can even go to a bunch of different uh other areas whether it's entertainment politics or whatever but i feel like a lot of people just want like confirmation bias where it's just you want to read things that you already believe and you already think are happening and you're not open to something else being true or something else actually being possible so a, a lot of fans that are thinking that way and if it's you know if they think that uh carl anthony towns is going to the new york knicks in two years they don't want to hear anything else if he goes to the grizzlies ah, it's not going to happen it's not going to happen they don't believe in it so he's actually in a grizzly uniform or something like that so it's okay. yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 funny. Like I, I like that old takes exposed account. Like like I think that started in like good nature, but that, I think it's it's kind of like exploded into like you know we have to like pile on somebody. <laughs> I think that's what it, like it's turned into. And like, that, just save it for the really good ones. Save it. For, I mean, like the ones I think about, which these aren't tweets, but like Phil's boy, Phil Jackson's boy, Char Charlie Rosen. I think he. You know, he had said that he didn't think LeBron would be anything more than whatever he was, you know, that maybe he'll be a good player. He'll be decent. Like, it'll be a miracle if he can ever be an all-star a few times. It's like, okay, that's <laughs> like, and he wrote it somewhere. I think he wrote it for page two for ESPN years ago. And like, that wasn't a tweet, but that would be a really, really good example. You know, yeah. But like when we're, you know, it's just, it's just weird when it's like about, an all rookie team, like who, I won't say who cares because obviously these people do, but it's just yeah. like, and, and and then he doesn't make the team and it's like, okay, you can write it off as a New York bias, but are we going to talk about a New York bias when Tom Thibodeau wins coach of the year 
over Monty Williams. And and like I I would have voted Tips Coach of the Year too. So like it's not to say it's a bad pick, but it's like, are we going to say that with Julius Randle wins most improved player? Are we going to say that with all the media attention that the Knicks were getting when they went on this turnaround and made the playoffs? Like, I think it's very clear that the league is more entertaining to fans, but also to the media when the Knicks are good. So it's not like people are, I don't think people are actively rooting for the Knicks to suck, but that's kind of the way a lot, like I think it, to a certain extent with the Knicks being as bad as they were for so long, I think there, it, it, it it's kind of a soothing thought for fans to feel, certain fans to feel like it's an us against them sort of thing. So if it's easier to paint me, who I think if anybody has been willing to give the team a completely fair shake for as long as I've been covering the league, I think, you know, I'm not to say it's just me, but like, I think I'm among those people. So if I'm not saying that I think RJ Barrett should be on the all rookie team, but that I would still take him third in a redraft, which is what I've also said. And I've always said that, um, (laughs) that might just mean that he wasn't one of the 10 best rookies last year, at least statistically and kind of on the court and, you know, using the numbers and different stuff like that, watching the film, watching everybody else in that class. Um, that might be all it means. And you could leave it at that. And if he takes a quantum leap in the second year, okay, great. That's what we were kind of hoping to see a little bit more of in the first year and not all, all progress is linear and that's fine. And that's okay. Um, instead of it being like this thing where you have to haunt people's mentions for, a year and a half and you know and i i rarely i try not to block people but if you can't engage me in like a respectful good faith and you're not trying to um then i'll take that so that's not to warn people i don't care about that but it's just it's kind of like what are we doing here and i i feel like i go above and beyond and try to be friendly to people to engage with people it's fun to engage with people um you know I would have loved to have tweeted with the people that covered the Bulls when I was a kid and when I was a teenager, high school, college kid, whatever. Um, so to do that is really cool. But like, if you can't do it in a level-headed way, and that's what I'm saying about the, the tenor and the tone of mm. some of the conversation where it's just the enjoyment of it is taken out when you, when you come in like at 105 miles per hour in terms of how you're engaging someone and you're just like calling them out of their name. And it's like, I, I go out of my way to try to cover these guys fairly and repeatedly was told this by people, you know, with the Knicks organization for years that they would deal with me a little bit more than everybody else, because they're like, you give us a fair shake from Bill Jackson on down would hear that from everybody would be able to email them privately and, you know, just get takes on certain things to make sure that what I was talking about was somewhat accurate, um, that they would deal with me and give me the time of day because I was willing to kind of give them a fair shake and not looking to kill them necessarily, unless they truly deserved it. So it's just so weird to me when people take that or don't read your work or didn't read your work before and don't know that that's kind of the way you approach covering the team. But it's like, I, I worked for the wall street journal. Like I wasn't overly interested in whether Matt Barnes drove 90 miles to beat Derek Fisher's ass. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't looking to make light of that because like the people that I'm writing for at the wall street journal, not to say they don't care about that, but that's not what I was tasked with writing about. Mm-hmm. So, right, right. you know, I could have made a lot of hay just trying to make fun of the Knicks and wasn't trying to do that. It's not, it's never been in my best interest to do that. And um, so I don't know. A lot of people know that the vast, vast majority of people know that, but it's always a little bit annoying and grating when there's people that like, oh, you didn't put RJ Barrett on your all rookie team. Like, I'm, I'm not even voting for this. So if, if this is what consumes your day, to talk about it this much it's just you know to to engage me at this level 
calling me out of my name when I'm trying to have like a good faith conversation with you is just not worth it. And a lot of people, unfortunately, are not worth it in that, in that regard. For sure, for sure. As we as we wrap up this part of the of, of the show, um, would like to ask you, like, what advice would you give in general for someone trying to get into sure. uh, journalism or sports journalism? Um, obviously, uh, I think if anyone's heard so far, keyword is hustle. Um, and by hustle, I don't mean like conning people, but hustle as in like, man, just get get in and like, you know, go above and beyond and do things that you normally wouldn't and give up your free time that you like, you know, would want to do to hang out with friends and things like that. Sure. But like, yeah, advice that you get. And even like you've described, even once you get to a, a bigger platform, like things to like avoid or like do that could make it better for your career. Sure. I, I, for me, man, I've said this for a while. I think what it was for me when I joined the Knicks beat, I looked around and I saw Mark Berman, Frank Asola, and Ian Begley, and Steve Popper, and Al Anazone. Like all these guys had been either on their beat with the Knicks for a long time or in the league for a long time covering them. And to me, what kind of the approach I took when I joined the beat as someone who was younger and like not as experienced, I was like, I'm not going to give people a reason just showing up to read my work over theirs. I write for the wall street journal. It's not a paper that everybody's going to subscribe to or will subscribe to. It's not a paper that's known for sports coverage. They haven't even covered sports, but for like two or three years when I got there. Um, so like no one's going to have like an immediate reason to read my stuff. So I have to do something different. That was the approach I came in with. That was why I kind of had a more analytical approach to it, a numbers-based approach to it, a really film-based approach to it initially, um, because I, it was kind of like, why Why would anyone read my stuff over theirs? Like, they're more established than I am. So I have to give people, like, a premium and a reason to read my stuff. So I took the summer before, and this was the summer that the Knicks lost Jeremy Lin, that I joined the beat. Um I took that summer. I studied everybody's basketball reference pages. I looked at a bunch of synergy stuff. Um, you know, I was basically just studying all summer, watching a lot of games, watching a lot of um, sequences to try to understand how they ran their offense, how they played defense um, to learn, you know, basically memorize almost a lot of their numbers. And um, because I needed to be more of an expert on certain things than everybody else. And so that was what I did. And I think it kind of influenced the way I wrote that season. I remember the very first season I wrote, the very first story I wrote that year was, I think the headline on it was the Knicks are the, the Knicks have become the oldest team in NBA history. They had signed Jason Kidd, Rasheed Wallace, Kurt Thomas, Pablo Prigioni, Marcus Camby, all in the same offseason. They're all 35 or older. They had lost Jeremy Lin and Tony Douglas and a bunch of their younger guys. So they went from being like, basically a middle of the pack team age wise to like the oldest team in the league and the oldest team in NBA history. Um, you know, and they were able to get those guys on the cheap. And so that was part of the reason why they did it. But I raised the question in that story. It was the first story I wrote of that season. I wrote it on the eve of training camp and it was basically a piece kind of designed to say like, did they do this too quickly to get this old? Because they're a good team. They've got three relatively young stars, Tyson, Mello and Amari, but you know, by putting rotation guys that are so old around them, did they get too old? Are they going to fizzle out at some point because of that? Are they going to break down physically because of that? And everybody was like, oh, the story's stupid because Melo and Tyson and Amari are young, blah, 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 blah. But lo and behold, 
those old guys got hurt during the season because they got hurt. Melo, Amari, and Tyson had to play longer minutes that season. And then those guys all got hurt that season. I think Amari needed yeah. knee surgery. Carmelo's shoulder was messed up. I think David West might pulled out of the socket or something. And Tyson's neck was messed up. He had like a bulging disc in his neck or his back or something like that for the series against Indiana. So the story looked really smart by the end of the season. But even if it looked really stupid to you at the beginning, it was at least something different. Nobody else was analyzing the age of the team and doing it on a granular level like that. So I say all that to say this, you know, I think with Bill Simmons, there's a reason certain people are drawn to his writing, although he doesn't really write as much anymore. Um, you know, Zach Lowe, all these guys have very distinct voices. Um, even Stephen A., if you go back to when he was a writer, all these guys have really distinct voices. And I think for me, my advice for people and what I think really panned out for me when I did this was I took the time away from when I left the Jets beat to when I joined the Knicks beat. And for those first couple of years on the Knicks beat, I took my time to really develop a voice of my own. Um to pull and take from the different writers that I really like um, and the things that they do that I'm like, Oh, this is so clever the way they phrase this or the way, the way that they decided to kind of construct their argument for this and took bits and pieces of different people that I liked um, to try to figure out how to kind of build my own voice and say things in my own tone and utilize my own arguments. Um, and some of that was numbers based. Some of it was kind of just language based and, you know, um, but I feel like I took the time to find my voice and find a voice that I thought would really resonate with readers. And I think that's what people have to figure out. It's kind of like, what's your niche or what can you be really good at? You normally can't completely copy somebody else's style, but if there, you know, I think a lot of people, um, even in the Knicks community, the Bulls community, the, you know, certainly out in LA, have taken the film route and kind of, you know, figured out I can write about the X's and O's and kind of, you know, show replays of things from different angles and just kind of slow this down and annotate this and write about this and maybe hop on a Zoom call and ask a player about this and what they were thinking when they did that. There's such a hole in the coverage. There has been, at least for years, such a hole in that coverage um, because a lot of the analysts weren't watching the games repeatedly. They weren't watching the games after they wrote their game story. And so it was just kind of like, you know, there was a gap there. People want to understand what they watched and how it played out that way and why the defense looks so bad one night, once so great the other, and the adjustments that are being made. It's high-level stuff that is, like, screaming out to have a, a more detailed explanation for. So whether it's that, whether it's that you take a more argumentative tone in your column writing or something like that, it's just figuring out your voice and kind of what you want to attack in your writing or you know, or whatever it is that you're doing, your content, I guess I'll say, um, and how you can make yours different and stand out from other people's. There's a lot of options right now. I, I tweet all the time about how many good writers there are out there and how much good material there is out there. So you really have to kind of give readers a reason to want to latch on to what you're doing uh, because they have a ton of options. Um, but there's also a ton of basketball to watch and there's a ton of access, like I said, now that didn't exist a year ago or two years ago because of, you know, the pandemic and the fact that everything has to be done through Zoom. If you live in a small market um, and you're with the team or around a team or a fan of a team that doesn't have a ton of media attention on it, that might be a good opportunity to hop in. You know, maybe the Cavaliers don't have many beat writers on their beat. So if you want to write something for one of the blogs or a fan blog or something like that, they might let you into their press conferences. You get access to those players. You can ask them the questions that 
all the rest of the fans are asking. And that might give you an audience that way. So, you know, it's just finding niches and, and, and trying to figure out where you can kind of fit in and how you can make your voice stand out from a big ass sea of voices. Mm, um, yeah. You know, but I, I think for me, that was something that I, I find myself proud of now um, is that I, I think I established a voice on the Knicks beat, which, um, you know, I couldn't be more grateful to the Knicks fans for allowing me to do that, for allowing that to resonate with most of them. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's a really good that's a really good point that you made uh, about just the different paths that you have now to be able to get into the business or be able to just cover uh, sports like maybe 30 years ago or so, like really the only legitimate way to do it was to write for a newspaper or to be on a news station. But now you can do that. You can uh, do a blog. You can do uh, there are websites where you can have like paid uh, you can post like paid articles that people can subscribe to. You can do a podcast. You can do so many different things. And that it really is such a, a great way for really anyone to get their foot in the door like the stories people have now of getting into the business and being successful are all much more unique than they used to be. Yeah, they man, they, and they need to probably be even more unique than they are right now, mm. just because it, you know, it's there's a reason the industry looks the way it looks. I'll, I'll just say that. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I I was fortunate enough to take one unpaid internship here in Chicago. Um, it was the most miserable work experience of my life. And I don't, you know, I don't want to minimize people that have it worse. Um, I was blessed to even have the opportunity, but you know, my family, we weren't well off, but we did fine. You know, my, my parents had good jobs. Um, but I was, you know, I was in some cases too proud and just not going to ask them for money after a certain point. Like, I was broke that summer. You know, it was a 40 hour a week internship. I remember I, I wanted to take a summer class that summer to try to get ahead with my stuff at Michigan. And um, they were like, no, if you take a summer class, we'll just give the internship to someone else. I'm like, so you're telling me you're not paying me anything, but you're telling me I can't even take a summer class one day a week, like, you know, to, to leave the job for maybe an hour and a half early to get to this one class. Like I can't work 38 and a half hours a week. You're going to make me. And they were like, nope, we'll just give the internship, the unpaid internship to someone else. So doing all that I was so hungry that summer and I remember I didn't have money for cabs I didn't have money for a train fare and the L and stuff like that so I remember walking to an interview across town and I wasn't quite wearing a suit but I was like dressed up I walked from if you guys know Chicago yeah I walked from the Tribune Tower which doesn't I guess it exists but the Tribune's not there anymore on Michigan Avenue out past the United Center on the west side it was like I don't even know how long a walk that is but it was like, and that's insane. <laughs> but I didn't have money to do anything else. So like, I just left for the interview extremely early to walk there. My feet were killing me. It was hot as hell outside, but I didn't have money to do anything else. Yeah. And I was too proud to say anything about it. Um, and that was with, again, for me being from like a relatively well-to-do family. And so I can't imagine how impossible it is for people that don't have, you know, decent money to take unpaid internships, which too much of the industry is designed that way. This yeah. is why I like get furious every time I see someone, oh, I did it this way. Okay, great that you did it that way. <laughs> yeah. It's also why the industry looks the way it does because it's most people can't do that. Certainly now, um, or most people from certain backgrounds can't do that. As well. No, for sure. So I, you know, and so it's great that it's starting to get a little bit more of a shakeup. 
mm-hmm. as far as maybe less traditional routes, but it needs to be even less traditional than what it is right now. Oh, in yeah. my opinion. And, um, and I hope it becomes that way because you have so many people that are talented, but it's like, I, you know, I teach journalism on the side at Northwestern uh, grad students. And it's probably, I don't even know. I probably should look it up. I think it's at least 70 grand for the one year program yeah. to do it. And I don't have the heart to say this directly to people, but like when people ask my opinion on whether they should do grad school um, to become a journalist, I didn't do that. I wouldn't have ever done that. Um, now I was fortunate to get really good internships during undergrad, but um, I mean, it's an industry that can pay well. I, I feel like I'm taken care of very well from where I work and where I've worked before, but I mean, it, it doesn't pay well for everyone and it's not necessarily the norm for it to pay well. And it's not necessarily the norm to work in New York or Chicago or LA. I mean, there's a lot of markets in between. And generally, if you do take a traditional route, you're more likely to end up in one of the smaller places first, where by definition, it's not going to pay as well. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that people, you know, it's not law, it's not law where you're going to make a ton of money, hopefully, you know, after you get out of law school, Um, it's journalism. And so I, I don't, want everyone to even have the patience to go through a journalism program or to go to grad school um, and to take the traditional route because the traditional route, it, it, it elbows and boxes people out in a way that is not great. Um, you know, I, I can readily say that. And it's not something that, I, you know, I think most journalists are proud of. I would hope that most of us aren't proud of it because I want more people that look like me to be able to get in, mm-hmm. um, which is why I take so much time, even this week, to talk with someone um, about how I got in and also like whatever advice I can give for them to get in because I, you know, the, the way the media is shaped and the way that the news gets out, particularly over the last four or five years, I think you know what I'm talking about, that yeah. it's yeah. really not ideal when you don't have certain people that you can have tell stories and to, to frame stuff the right way or to frame stuff a different way. And you could go all the way down to the way textbooks are decided upon and like what's in those and whether we can talk about critical race theory or it, it's, there's all, uh, it, it's never ending, but it, it, it's always more impactful and better for everybody if we have an array of different people in the industry. And I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's great advice for sure. And everything that you said is, is spot on as far as the ways people have to really, you know, go above and beyond because of, like they're not as privileged as other people might be to have the opportunities. And like you mentioned, like the free internship stuff, I think some people that usually say, Oh, I did it. It's like, well, you probably had the ability for your parents to, you know, support you. So that's why you were probably able to handle those free internships. But Chris, thank you so much for joining us, man. This has been an absolute pleasure. Um, Obviously I think everyone that's going to be listening should know where to follow you. Uh, I'm sure they already know who you are and everything that you've done. Um, but yeah, if you want to let listeners know where they can follow you and please also let listeners know about the book that you're working on and, and when you think it'll be out for people. to. Well, thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Um, my handle on Twitter is herring. My last name, like the fish herring, uh, underscore NBA. Um, and the book, thank goodness will be out. It's so it's a book, not about the bulls, but about the Knicks, um, about the nineties Knicks. So Riley Ewing, um, John Starks, Anthony Mason, Charles Oakley. Um, and I think we're going to tweak the title a little bit. It'll be called Blood in the Garden. And nice. the subtitle is The Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks. 
Um, it should be out for pre-sale next month. We were talking about putting it out for pre-sale uh, closer to Black Friday, but apparently there were some people at Simon and Schuster that were like, "Why are we waiting that long? Like, his book is going to come out in mid-January of next year, and so if we put it out for pre-sale and you know, and Black Friday in November, we're only giving people two months to buy it before it comes out. Why not just put it out now, basically?" So we're trying to finalize the cover for it right now. And, um, and once we do that, and I think iron out a couple other things, they'll put it on pre-sale. They said by the latest, it'll be out late next month. So people will be able to buy it, buy it. You know, I'm using air quotes next month. It will come out January 18th of next year, but, uh, it was a pleasure to work on. It was hard to work on it. I think I interviewed about 220 people for it. Um, wow. all told and, um, you know, trying to just synthesize their stories and put it together in a, <laughs> in a way that makes sense that people can actually read. But I think there's a ton of stuff in there that, uh, that's never been discussed before. That's, you know, that was said to have happened one way that totally happened a different way. Um, some really controversial stuff that I think will, will prompt people to look at Riley a little bit differently, certainly Nick fans, but um, you know, about his decision-making, certainly about the exit that he had from New York and how controversial that was when he went to Miami, but um, even down to just the game seven decision with John Starks to, to leave him in and what went into that when he shot two for 18 against the Rockets in the final. So there's a ton of stuff in there. I'm really proud of it. I wasn't for a long time, uh, but I feel like I'm finally at that point now. But um, So much fun to work on it um, and something that I think I can be really proud of now. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it a little bit. No, for sure. Yeah, yeah I think even if we're Bulls fans, we could enjoy that just because of the 90s nostalgia. Uh, that Knicks team, probably one of the only few teams that really gave the Bulls an honest to good um, shot at possibly beating them uh, when they pushed them to the game, uh, seven games that one year. Um, and what was it, 93, I think? 92. 92, 92. sorry, 92. Yeah, yeah. so... Yeah, that 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 should be a really fun read. I'm definitely going to be uh, getting that book. So uh, a lot of stuff yeah, to in it. there about the the rivalry too. I mean, as yeah. much as you can call it a rivalry, because obviously they were close at times. But the Bulls got the best of them whenever Jordan was there. But a lot of fun stories in there. I, I interviewed a lot of Bulls players, and I interviewed Phil Jackson for it. Um, a lot of stuff in there about the yeah. the mm-hmm. nature of the rivalry, how much they disliked each other, about Xavier McDaniel getting in the face of Michael Jordan. Um, yeah. Will Purdue gave me some great stuff for the book. Um, it was just really funny about how much the Knicks fans hated the Bulls and how much the Bulls could feel that whenever they walked around to get food in the city. Um, yeah. so really fun stories in there. But um, I think the first person I quote in the book, not quite the first, but the second person I quote in the entire book is a Bulls player. So, nice. um, so it's very prominent throughout the book, that rivalry and kind of the dislike for each other. But thank you again so much for giving me a chance to plug it here. No, I appreciate yeah, it. Definitely. Uh, Edward, how about yourself? Any final thoughts um, before we wrap up? Uh, nothing for me. Uh, just thank you to Chris again for uh, just breaking so much down with the uh, playoffs. Of course, the Bulls uh, talking a lot about his career and, uh, you know, how he's been grinding throughout that. And, uh, yeah, just really thankful. Uh, just really good thoughts. And uh, yeah, glad you stopped by. Yeah. Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate yeah, no you guys. Uh, and best of luck with everything that you do. 
No, for sure. Thank you again. So yeah, that's a wrap for today's show. Don't forget to tune in every Tuesday morning at AM Central on Dash Radio's Nothing But Net radio station and also to the 1252 Sports Entertainment Network. If you miss any previous episodes, you can find us on all major and minor podcast platforms. Please subscribe and rate us a five on Apple Podcasts. Thank you again to Chris Herring for joining us and to the listeners tuning in. As always, for Edward Schuler and myself, till next time, Bulls fans. 